Okay, it looks like you all can uh, hear me. Uh, well, praise the Lord. Uh, thank you so much for that welcome, Brother uh, uh, Pastor Michael. And uh, I'm really excited to be here with you all today. Uh, there is something to be said for uh, churches that are in different locations, different compositions, that are still uh, dedicated, devoted to the same gospel, uh, the gospel that has uh, that's been preached for the last 2,000 years and um, been preached in, in part whispers from the Old Testament, been preached for thousands of years. And uh, no matter what the time is, no matter what the place is, no matter who the person is, the gospel uh, goes forth. And I'm so thankful uh, that we have partners in the gospel uh, this morning. And uh, my my people, I heard the sermon uh, 1.5 times, um, and that's because we had to uh, uh, record it uh, again the second half of the sermon because of technical difficulties. But I ate a good meal on Friday, and I'm thankful that our people get to eat a good meal uh, this morning. But my prayer is that uh, we get to eat from this text that Jesus has laid before us, uh, particularly about a very important issue. Uh, just real quick, uh, just a couple more details about uh, my family and I. I grew up in the Midwest. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, uh, the gateway city. Uh, and so uh, it used to be a point where you had to stop through St. Louis to get to the West, but now you can just fly over it. But I, I hope that you all remember uh, St. Louis, the big arch there. And um, also the largest monument in, in the world. I want you to know that. Not the largest, largest building, but the largest monument. Got to get some St. Louis love here. Um, my wife grew up in uh, Southern California. And so we can see who won that uh, that fight, that argument. Um, and so it wasn't much of a, of a fight. Back in 2012, I, I finished up my, my grad studies uh, here. I went to seminary, in, Southern Seminary in Louisville. And then we transferred out to um, uh, right here in Marin County in California. And I got to tell you that uh, the Bay messed me up. It messed me up. I was never the same. I did not want to live in another pl- uh, part of the country. We left temporarily uh, to do some ministry back uh, back east. Uh, but we came right back uh, several years later and planted a church. And so we're thankful this is home. My uh, my son was born here. My daughter was reared here. And so we're glad to be uh, home. Um, I'm going to read our text today coming out of Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Jesus is going to talk about something very important. Uh, last night, an incident happened that uh, I didn't know what would happen, but it was a powerful illustration uh, that I can't um, ignore for this morning. And um, last night we heard this huge thud. My wife and I, we looked at each other while we were in the bed late last night, and we didn't know what it was. I, I thought maybe someone had come into the house, uh, but my, my alarm didn't go off. So I'm like, surely that's not it. We thought that maybe the kid, one of the kids fell off the bed, but that would have been too strange of, of a sound. About 10 seconds later, our suspicions of whatever was going on was met with a scream. Uh, the scream was outside, and someone was yelling fire. I was, I live in a very diverse neighborhood in Oakland. Oakland is one of the most diverse communities in our country. And um, I have African-American neighbors. I have Vietnamese Chinese neighbors. I have Korean neighbors. I have Latino neighbors all around me. As I went outside, I saw a fire, and I ran outside to be met with someone who was of a different culture than I am. I'm not setting this up to make myself the hero of the story, but simply there was a statement that was repeated over and over throughout the night as we were getting people out of the homes of next door and the home that was experiencing the fire. The common theme was 
we are neighbors. We are neighbors. Over and over again, this woman thanked me and thanked me as we were getting dogs and, and her husband out. And I kept re responding. We didn't speak the same language, but we are neighbors. We are neighbors. And she understood that. It's great depth to that. They, we, we understood. I, I could not lay out before her the full gospel and the full counsel of God. But one thing that she understood was what it meant to experience neighborly love. Jesus says something about neighborly love, and I hope that it stretches or affirms what we already know to be true, or maybe even stretch us and stretch our definitions as Jesus does here. Let me go ahead and read the text for us and go ahead and get into the text. Jesus says, as Luke records in chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and deported, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and, he, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. The question that we are going to deal with today is what type of people is the Lord forming in the world, a part of his covenantal community? What are the people that, that are making up the kingdom of God? What type of people are they? Today, we will deal with the question, to whom is our love limited to as we talk about what type of people the covenantal people of God are, the Christian is? What is the boundary of this love in a society of such clearly defined cultural borders? Who is the who of our applied love? We certainly grow up with ideas about who to love and who we shouldn't worry about due to the teachings of the tribes we're philosophically reared in, or perhaps even the experiences we have in this world that shapes our outlooks, our outlook on life. Today, our story starts with a relevant question to Jesus on this point regarding who is our neighbor and how are we to love this who. A lawyer starts off this, this part of scripture, he starts off while, while he's seated in a crowd, not much different from this one. He stands up and he tries to put Jesus to the test and asks, teacher, how might I earn eternal life? 
Jesus turns and asks him, as Jesus normally does, he returns the question with a question. Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it, Jesus asked. Well, the Jewish theologian answered correctly by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 9, and pairing it with Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. These are the two laws that Jesus says that upon these two, all of the other laws hinges upon. They hang upon these two laws. Deuteronomy 6, 4, 9 starts off with the famous Shema, recognizing that God is one and we are to worship him and how and defines how we are to love him. We are called to love. All of humanity is called to love God with all of their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength, with everything within them. And then Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says that we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Jesus affirms his answer. Then the lawyer desiring to declare himself righteous, it says here that he desired to, he desired to justify himself, which means to make himself right and, and make himself appear right before the crowds. He says that, okay, essentially I've done this, Jesus, and, but, but hold on, hold on. Who do you say my neighbor is? I agree with you, Jesus, that I should be loving God with everything within me. As I've stated, you agree with it. We're all on the same page. But hold on. Who do you say my neighbor is? See, I know God and and I know who I consider to be my neighbor. But who are you saying I'm supposed to apply this love to? And Jesus is going to now answer this man's question in this parable. This parable is given in response to a question, and we got to keep that question at the forefront of our mind. Who is your neighbor? The parable essentially has four movements that I'm going to lay out for us before we go into application. Let's see if we can get a little bit clearer on what this scripture and what the story means. The first movement says that, firstly, someone is hurting. A man is attacked on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. The geographical layout of the routes from Jerusalem to Jericho is a very important one. It was one that is at a very steep um, um, incline uh, uh, as it was moving from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And uh, if you're coming from Jerusalem, you're going down. And so you're talking about 200 feet in elevation um, every uh, so many feet. And when they would have heard this from Jerusalem to Jericho as they're climbing uh, this incline, they would have heard certain images and certain images would have come up in their minds wait a minute you're talking about the 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 jericho road they would have thought something like an equivalent today tenderloin and sfo in san francisco bourbon street in new orleans this had a, a, a strong reputation and jesus intentionally sets it in this setting the man is mugged, the man is beaten, he's robbed, and he's left on the road for, for dead. And this is the first movement. This is a man is suffering on the roadside. The second movement is that people pass by on the other side. Notice that you have a priest going down that road. He saw the man and they passed by on the other side. And then a Levite likewise saw the man and passed on the other side. The relationship of priest to Jericho is a very important one to this story. See, when we talk about Jericho, one source tells us that that out of 24 priestly orders that existed, 21 resided in Jericho, which is to say that Jericho was a city that were full of priests. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing as he's putting this in the setting. 
a part of the character development of our story, we can see that this is clearly a conversation about the actions of religious people. All right, thumbs up if you can hear me. All right, very good. Um, so why did they pass on the other side is the question. Their lens, I believe, of the law calls the leaving of life. It was their lens and how they interpreted the law. See, according to the Levitical law, priests were not allowed to touch corpse except for close relatives, as outlined in Leviticus 21, verses 1 through 4. And the high priests were not allowed to touch a corpse in any circumstance. And so, as scholar Snodgrass, as he notes, he says that Jews believe that corpse defilement was conveyed not only by touching a corpse, but also by touching what a corpse had touched, or even through the air, by the shadow of a coffin, or by one shadow falling on a grave. They believe that they could become ceremonially unclean if they touched a corpse, or if they even came too close to a corpse. Even so much that they had to even create rules to make sure a shadow didn't cast on them to make sure they had enough distance between them and a deceased body. These are all the rules that they're coming up with, which starts off as an earnest desire to make sure they're not breaking the law. However, more and more of the law is going to obstruct their view and their lens of what God means and God's intent for the law. Rabbi, rabbis taught that you should keep at least six feet away from a corpse. And this may be in view as they cross to the other side of this person who is suffering. They had laws, they had rules that they were trying to abide by, however, not so fast. The law also prohibited Israelites from abandoning a neglected corpse. Essentially, what was going on here was a deliberate choice to go with what they believed the letter of the law was, but it was a misunderstanding of the law. Besides, the story that Jesus gives never actually says that the person was actually deceased. They went to the other side, and they left him there, and they didn't want anything to do because it was better to avoid risk than it was to engage and help to have compassion on this man. The third movement of four movements, you have compassion comes from the unexpected. This is the next movement. The text says that, as Jesus is telling the story, that a Samaritan walks by. At this point in the story, there would have been eyebrows raising. Uh, I can't say enough here that would actually convey the amount of tension that existed between Samaritans and Jews. There is theological tension going on here. There's ethnic tension going on here. And there's cultural baggage that's going on between the Samaritan and the Jew. And so as Jesus is unfolding and, and giving a further story development, he mentions the Samaritan. And I can imagine as he's saying this, that people are beginning to either form assumptions in their mind as to who the bad guy was going to be in this story or at least very suspicious of where Jesus was going because Jesus was known to ruffle feathers. Part of the theological tension was that you're talking about two different groups that did not believe the same thing, shared some beliefs, but they did not believe the same things on some essential matters. One, the, uh, in terms of theological tensions, the Jews believed that the place of worship was there in Jerusalem. At the temple, this is where God said that he will reside in the city of Zion. This is God's city and God's people come all over the known world. God's Jewish people come over all, uh, from all over the world to worship at this, this place. They did not believe that. They believed that the place of worship was right there in Samaria at Mount Gerizim. 
There was some theological tension there. They had differences. There was some, also some ethnic tension as well. It was, they had a doubtful legacy to the land as assumed by the Jews. If you remember some of, of the church history or some of the history of the Israelites, back in 722, you had the Syrians coming down and taking over places, and they did something that the Jews believed was deplorable. They intermingled with the Assyrians to the betrayal of their own people. And so there was ethnic tensions there. One of the ancient sources that we have here says that two nations my soul detests, as a Jewish person rabbi wrote, and the third is not even a people. He says those who live in Seir and the Philistines and the foolish people that live in Shechem. The Shechem is the region that houses the Samaritans. It says that they're not even a people. There was so much disdain for them. And there was, this doesn't even speak of all the other cultural baggage that existed between them. There was fighting. There were killings amongst them. It even raised to the point where in A.D. 50, about 30-something years or 20-something years after Jesus' death on the cross and his burial and resurrection, there was a tension that went all the way back from since 722. And the Samaritans had ambushed and killed Jews, and Jews retaliated. It raised to the point of, of the governor of Syria getting involved, and he crucified people on both sides. And it also raised all the way to the, the Caesar, Roman Caesar, Claudius. He had to get involved. We're talking about cultural oil and water. There's so much that I can say here about this. I mean, as a matter of fact, I'll say one more thing. You weren't even liable to capital punishment on the Jewish side for killing a Samaritan. This is how bad it got. This is why eyebrows are raising at this point. And listen to what the Samaritan says as we uh, get ready to move into this fourth movement. The unexpected did the unexpected thing. Listen to what he does. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back." Three things happen here. We see from the Samaritan, this unexpected person doing the unexpected thing. We see compassion, we see commitment, and we see courage coming from this person. It says that he had compassion on this person that was different than him. And that history and culture said that you have nothing to do with, leave him there. And he would have been historically and culturally justified in doing so. It says that he had compassion. This is a very deliberate word. It means bowel. It means that it comes from the deepest parts of his being. He's moved. He, he felt deeply and, and viscerally. He, he yearned. He had compassion and pity on this person. He saw someone in need and he didn't care about where this person came from, what his socioeconomic status was, what his ethnicity was, or what the history between them were. Jesus says that he had compassion. He had commitment, which means that there was sacrifice there. He, he had a, a skin in the game. It says that he gave two denarii. He gave up his own resources. A, one denarii was a full day's wage. He gave two days, meaning that it didn't matter. Two days worth of work. He says, you're worth it. And not only did he do that, he went over 
and beyond what was necessary. Whatever he needs put on his put on my tab. It is this beautiful, lavish love, this scandalous love, as some would say. Why would you put so many resources in this person that's other than why would you do that? Jesus is giving this illustration and he's getting at the gospel as so many of our hearts are probably burning as we are starting to see the gospel come through the story. And he had courage, meaning that it didn't matter what uh, the philosophical construct that he was reared in. It didn't matter what it said and the they said. It didn't matter who saw it and what they would think. It didn't matter if they believed that uh, he was betraying or he was going to the other side. It didn't matter. It takes courage to do that. Okay. Here are some of the fundamental things that I believe is important to laying out the story. Let's go ahead and move into a point of application. What might this mean for us? What does it, this mean for us when adding verses 36 and 37 in particular? The question that Jesus seeks to answer is, who is your neighbor that you are to love? This is the question that Jesus is answering in this parable. Verse 36 says that which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the men who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. See, a part of what this means is that your neighbor is any in need of your love. I want you to notice this, that the love Jesus described does not allow us to actually define the limitations of the who. Jesus is responding to the question of who is my neighbor, yet he does not define who in terms of the way in which this man wants it defined. He never says that your neighbor is a Jewish male, your neighbor is a Samaritan. No, he doesn't stop there. It's not a who, but it's defined in a what. It's not simply a noun, but it's better described as a verb, as an action. The what is what we're called to. The who is whoever may be before us along the way. And it doesn't matter who they are, where they come from. In other words, as one author says, one cannot define one's neighbor. One can only be a neighbor. It is a borderless love, which means that there is no limit to those we are called to love as ourselves. This is very important as we talk about the gospel. And that does not mean that we accept the choices or behavior of persons that we love when we talk about a borderless love, because approving is not a qualification or pre-qualification for loving. The ones who were supposed to help cross to the other side. Who do we pass to the other side for? This is a good question as it is set in a religious context. Remember in our story that both the priest and the Levite saw the man, but only the Samaritan saw the man. They saw him, but they didn't see because they had legal and ethnic and cultural blinders on that disallowed them from being a human or seeing a human in front of them. This will only continue to happen in this world and, and, and even in the church, dare I say, as long as we're owned by various societal interest groups. If our allegiance is to an ideological mob, this is something that I want 
to say, and I preach often to myself, and I preach to our congregation, and I preach to Christians, if our allegiance is to an ideological mob, then we will always ignore the individual on the other side out of fear of excommunication. Case in point, we often see uh, those in news that we are encouraged to root for or to root against. And I found myself even on social media in the heat of cultural tension. There's tensions that we feel inwardly and that I feel inwardly, and perhaps you do, that if I say this on social media, then people are going to believe that I'm taking this side. And, and if I say that, then people are going to think that I'm, I'm taking this side over here. See, but one thing that is true of all Christians is that there's only one side and I know that things are, are complex and we wish things could practically work out this simply, but I believe that there's something that supersedes all of this and that is this gospel culture. If you're owned by the other side, then you remain quiet out of fear that one may think that you're siding with the enemy, but the truth and reality here is that there's a higher ethic there's a higher ethic that we are governed by, and that is the love of God, as we're going to close with here in a second as I'm closing here. See, our love in this world as Christians should be both expected and culturally unexpected. God's children cannot afford to be the social bystanders of the sufferings of so-called cultural outsiders because there is no such thing as a cultural outsider to the Christian. It means that we love God with a never-ceasing vertical stretch and we love our neighbor with an ever-stretching horizontal reach. This is a part of the, the, what Christ says. All of the law can be found to be summarized in these two laws, that we love God with this vertical love, with everything within us, but we also love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And this is a love that stretches without borders, which means that it doesn't matter the who, we are called to love we're called to reach. It means that who we give our best love to, it extends far beyond the regions of how we socially self-identify because the Samaritan here, he gives his best love and not partial love. I don't know if you grew up like I grew up, but we grew up in family units and I gave my best love to my, my family unit and I gave my best love to those that, uh, that agree with me growing up before I was a Christian. And then I had to learn that, wait a minute, my best love, the, the love that I'm supposed to, that God says that you love your, your, you love others as you love yourself. You do it to others as you would do it to your, yourself or as you will want done unto you, as the scripture says. You give your best love to all people. It also means that this is a picture of being able to travel and to love without visas or border regulations. My wife and I, we've done a lot of traveling throughout uh, our, our life and a lot of uh, travels throughout the world. And it always amazed me that it doesn't matter how far the, the country is, is, is away. It doesn't matter. Every country has their own border regulations. And it doesn't matter if you enter into this country, if you go to another country, such as France to, 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 to England. It doesn't matter if it takes only one hour to get there. There are border regulations and it could take you a while to get past customs. However, this type of love that we're called to, it is removal of old border regulations, which means that we're called to love people without these preconceived border restrictions. 
I think it means that we love the hurting and we love those that are in need no matter what. Okay, let me close on this point. I think there is something about when we love this way that gets at the heart of the gospel. See, Jesus, we see, gives the ultimate example to this and for uh, for this. As Jesus is telling the story as to how we are to love our neighbor, it is also true at the heart of what Jesus does and how he loves those that are on the other side of him. See, thank praise be to God that Jesus doesn't pass to the other side when it comes to us and when it comes to people, when it comes to sinners. See, he doesn't avoid us, praise the Lord. The scriptures over and over again, it gives a picture of Jesus uh, not avoiding, but engaging and, and Jesus and engaging into the lives of those that are supposed to be on the other side. Those that the law said that if you touch them, Jesus, you will become ceremonially unclean. But Jesus is touching no matter what is going on. He engages the leper. He's associated and ate with sinners. He touches the spiritual dead that they may come spiritually alive. He doesn't avoid suffering. He advances towards it. And we see this even in the epitome of the cross in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that Jesus is even willing to become sin itself. What does that mean? In 1st, 2nd Corinthians 5, 21, it says, Therefore, our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus does not cross to the other side. No, he engages us that while we were yet sinners, God, Jesus demonstrates his love for us by shedding his own blood on the cross. How we love communicates the heart of the gospel, which is why it's so important that we love this way. We are a people that have been loved with such a great love. And out of that love and out of the motivation of that love, we love others, no matter who they are and where they come from. I end with this quote. One scholar by the name of Snodgrass says this, Disciples of Jesus are those who refuse boundaries for the identification of a neighbor and instead love even their enemies. With that, in, uh, with that identity in place, each person must determine what path of wisdom best expresses that identity, but our identity nonetheless is in Jesus and people must experience that identity. Let me pray for us as I pray the gospel in relation to this text. Lord, we see today that when we ask the question in the, the midst of a culture that is filled with so many borders as to who we are to love and how we are to love, Lord, may we see the heart of the gospel in this text that, that we must love those even if we believe that they are unworthy of our love. That it challenges us at the core that all people are made in the image of Christ and we're called, I mean, excuse me, in the image of God and we are called to love and to care no matter what. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom in how that looks, Lord. And I pray, God, as the culture screams border and restriction and regulation, Lord, that we see the freedom that you afford us in the, through the cross, Lord, to love people and to love them sacrificially, knowing, Lord, that it is much more important that people experience your love through us for them, that they may come to worship this Christ who loves so lavishly. Lord, we love you and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.